Well, the subject this morning that we're going to be thinking about is the glory of God. So we're going to take a little bit of a break from our series that we've been doing on the church and thinking about more of a Reformation theme, specifically in the words that we would say or you might hear or read a little bit in Sunday school we were thinking about or would have spoken soli deo gloria to the glory of God alone. If somebody were to ask you, what is the glory of God? How would you answer that question? They said, I've heard about this thing called the glory of God. What would you answer? Maybe you take them to the book of Exodus. And you remember in Exodus, Moses wanted God to show him his glory. God, please show me your glory. And you remember, of course, that Moses could not behold the full glory of the Lord, could he? And of course, God knows that Moses couldn't handle the full glory of the Lord. And so what did he do? He took Moses and he hit him in the cleft of the rock, right? And then as God went by, he was able to see something of the backside of the glory of God. Maybe you remember when Moses came down from the mountain and the two tablets were in his hands and his face was shining because he had been speaking with God and his face is literally reflective, glowing as a result of being in the presence of the great light of of God. So much so that when Moses would intercede for the people, you remember that he would go before the people and they would have to veil his face because of the glow. Maybe you'd show somebody who asked you, what is the glory of the Lord? Maybe you would show them passages like how the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. Or how the glory of the Lord was in the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord was in the temple. Maybe you show them a negative example. Like in 1 Samuel, when Phineas' wife has a child, and after hearing of the death of her husband and the Ark of the Covenant being taken, Phineas' wife names her child Ichabod, which means the glory has departed from Israel. Maybe you'd say, well, I'd rather go to the New Testament to answer that question. And you'd begin to think of a passage like Matthew 17 at the transfiguration of Jesus. And Jesus ascends up into the mountains with a few of His disciples and Elijah and Moses come down from heaven and they're with Him on that Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is dazzling in His robes of white and brightness is all around. And Moses and Elijah standing there, they're beholding the glory of the transfigured Christ. In John chapter 1, He says in the beginning of the Gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld His Glory, glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. Or Hebrews chapter 1 says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. That He's actually the radiance of His glory. Or in Revelation, the multitude says, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And John tells us toward the end of the book of Revelation that it's the glory of God that is illuminating the city of God. 
And so you can go all the way to the front of the Bible, you can go all the way to the back of the Bible, and everywhere in between there's this constant reference to the glory of God. And so if somebody were to ask you that question, what is the glory of God? How would you answer it? One author said that the glory of God is the going public of His holiness. Like in Isaiah 6. Do you remember where in Isaiah, he has this vision of the Lord and the angels are calling out to one another. Holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of His glory. There's a a clear connection between the holiness of God and the glory that shines forth from His holiness. The earth being filled with the glory of the Lord as an extension, as a telling forth or a going public of God's perfect, unadulterated holiness. And so when the holiness of God is on display, it is displayed as glory. And this is a glory that is particular to Him. This is a glory that belongs to Him. But then there's an aspect that we heard this morning in our call to worship and in the Scripture reading from the Old Testament where we ascribe to God glory. We give Him glory. We live our lives that in a way that would glorify Him. Like the famous verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. There's a sense in which your whole life, whether you're eating or drinking, should be done in a way that is glorifying to God. You see, we cannot add to the glory that He already has. In other words, it's not as though there's a bank of God's glory and every time you give Him glory, you're like adding more glory into the pot. That's not how it works. It's the reality that God's glory is infinite. It's immeasurable. We can't wrap our minds around this thing. And so we simply ascribe to Him the glory that He's already due. We praise Him in light of Him already being the gloried being that He is. And so this is not a matter of us adding glory onto Him, but a matter of ascribing Him glory. We don't give Him anything more than He already has, is what I'm trying to say. We simply ascribe to Him the glory that He is due. So we cannot add to this glory, but we ascribe it to Him. We give testimony to His glory. And when you get to the end of Romans chapter 11, you find Paul launching in ascribing to God glory. This is what we call doxology. We just got done singing the doxology. And the Greek word for glory is doxa. That's the Greek word for glory. And this is what Paul shoots into. So for 11 chapters in the book of Romans, what is he doing? He's talking about how whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, doesn't matter. All of you are under the law of God. You are all going to be held liable for what you knew. Every man and woman is going to stand before God and they're going to be judged. 
He even says in Romans chapter 3, doesn't he? He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we know that God is not partial in this. That every single person is going to stand before God and they're going to be judged. However, there's great news. He begins to talk about this idea of justification and that God declares sinners righteous. He takes filthy sinners like you and me, people that have all kinds of sin struggles, and He forgives us of our sin. And He enables us by His Spirit to help us to walk in faithfulness. And so Paul is going through the first 11 chapters of Romans, really, with the great subject of our salvation and the promulgation of salvation and proclaiming the gospel to other people and so forth. And so he goes through all of this for about 11 chapters, and then he gets to the end of chapter 11 after talking about salvation and this beautiful gospel and election and predestination and the righteousness of God being imputed to you, being given to you, and so that you're standing as somebody who has now righteous even though you're a filthy sinner and he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he launches into praise to God for all of this notice beginning in verse 33 oh the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways If you're taking notes, the first thing that you're finding are three exclamations. And verse 33 begins, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Paul's usage for the word depths certainly implies extreme depths. It's the same word that he uses over in 1 Corinthians where he talks about how the Spirit of God is the one who searches the deep things of God. It's the same word. These are the deep things. There's the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. I know that some of you have boats and some of you are fond of fishing. And when you go on a boat, oftentimes you'll find something that we call a depth finder. And you're going along, and it might say 2 feet, it might say 5 feet, it might say 25 feet. But what that depth finder helps you to do is to know how deep the water is underneath the boat. But friend, there is no depth finder that you can put onto God to find the depth of the riches of His wisdom and knowledge. There's, There's no way to calculate how deep the riches of his wisdom and knowledge is. You, you could never plumb the depth of God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. You could never do it. It's impossible. Christianity isn't something to, to get into and to begin following after Jesus because, because we've wrapped our minds around God. Because you've somehow been able, you're able to somehow measure the depth of God's riches in His wisdom and knowledge. That's not why you enter into this thing. The reality is you enter into this thing because you become enamored by the reality that you can't wrap your mind around this God. That you can never plumb His depths. That you can never fully understand God. The reality is, if you could fully understand God, you would be God. But we can't. I'll never forget being at a conference. I was in college. It was 
2008, and I went down to Louisville for this conference, and um, R.C. Sproul was preaching, and one of my favorite preachers and theologians, a lot of you know that Reed's initials are R.C. because of R.C. And he preached this one message that has become, to me, one of the greatest I've ever heard. But in that sermon, I remember him saying, I've spent 50 years studying the atonement of Christ. And I feel like I've barely scratched the surface. When you start studying God, you start to realize very quickly you're never going to get to the bottom of Him. There's no way. And so we need to have the same sort of spirit that R.C. had. We need to have the same sort of spirit that Paul has and have this attitude of these are the things of God and they are immeasurably deep. That we cannot plummet the depths of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. But do you notice what Paul does in verse 33? Notice this again. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. He's, he's continuing and your translators, for most of your translations at least, are putting in exclamation points at the end of these sentences, right? You see exclamation points in there? Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways, exclamation point. You and I live in a, in, in a time where exclamation points, if, if they don't put three exclamation points at the end of the sentence, you're wondering why they're mad at you. That's how we talk. Hey, how are you doing? Exclamation point, question mark, explanation point, smiley face, smiley face. Like, it, it's, it's eccentric. But Paul here, because he doesn't use exclamation points often, or at least doesn't intend them too often, it's easy to know when they're to be supplied, to be put in. These, these exclamation points are displaying the excitement that he has. How he's enthralled with God. And so exclamation points here are giving crescendo to his praise to God. Paul praises the Lord with, with exclamation. He's pumped about the work of God. He's enthralled about the work of God, the salvation of God. In Romans chapter 7, when he's talking about how much of a sinner he is and who's going to deliver me from this body of death, well, God is the one who's going to deliver him from the body of death and to forgive him of all of his sins, even though he stands as someone who says, as to the law, I was perfect, and, and all of the rest. I was blameless in regard to all. But he still, he recognizes himself as a complete and utter sinner standing before a beautifully holy God, Utterly impeccable. Not one blemish against the record of God. And so here he is giving exclamation to the fact that he has been saved. Beginning with the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. But then moving on to how unsearchable are his judgments. Something that many of you do every single day is you pop open a search engine like Google or otherwise and you type a few words in, you hit enter, and it will give you like a billion hits on whatever you're looking to find. But friend, just like there's no depth finder regarding the depths of God, there is no search engine that can exhaust God's judgments. There's no search engine that you can apply to God and figure out all that you want to know. 
He goes on in verse 33, and he uses the word unfathomable. Unfathomable are his ways. Other translations say inscrutable, or past finding out, or untraceable. Don't you have this sense regarding your salvation? Don't you have this sense in regard to the doctrine surrounding your salvation? If you are a a born-again Christian, if you have truly professed Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you can say the three words, God saved me. The how and the why and to the what extent and the direction of all of this salvation is unfathomable. Do you realize what it took to save you, Christian? The death of God. Christ being crucified on a tree. That's what it took to save you. That's how disgustingly sinful that all of us are. It took the death of God. People who have yet to be hit with the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God and to use words like inscrutable or unsearchable or unfathomable or whatever, people who have yet to be hit with the depths of this are just an unenthralled people. People who think they can search out God and have their minds wrapped around Him. It's curious for us as Christians because we don't often use words like unfathomable when we start talking about the fact that God saved us. We don't get it. So we sing to the praise of His glory, to the praise of His mercy and grace. I hope our football team beats the next team that we face. I can't wait for lunch so I can stuff my face. And we're an unenthralled people. We think about salvation, and it just doesn't just doesn't do it for us. When we consider the Reformation and the cries that came from the Reformation, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, like all of this truth that's related to our salvation, how is it that we remain simply unmoved in light of what it took to save us? Like, do you ever break into doxology? Do you ever break into doxology, not necessarily the song, but in terms of just praise to God for the reality of your salvation? Does your spouse ever hear you say something like, I just can't believe God saved me, and what it took that God saved me? Do your children understand you as somebody who is enthralled with God and what God did to save you from your sins? Words like depths and inscrutable and unsearchable. You see, Paul can articulate all of the theology of the first 11 chapters of this book. Like He's in the ivory tower. He understands it all. And he's bringing it all down for us. But then he jumps and launches into this praise to God. And I think that in the context of our marriages... And in the context of our, with our children, and in the context of this church, yes, we can understand the first 11 chapters. But if it doesn't cause you to break into doxology and praise to God, then who cares? 
Who cares if you can recite all of the words and all of the doctrine and all the rest if it doesn't actually produce doxology within you? Paul was an enthralled man. He understood the depth of God which launched him into praise to God. And so we have these exclamations. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. He, he gives three exclamations. But then Paul moves into questions. He goes from exclamation to examination. Look at verse 34 with me. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again? Paul does this thing elsewhere. In Romans 3, he does it as well, and he weaves together a few questions that fit with what he's trying to drive home. These are Old Testament quotations that he's bringing all together in order to prove his point. The questions he asks are clearly rhetorical. When Paul quotes Isaiah and asks, who has known the mind of the Lord? He's not expecting your hands to go up. It's a rhetorical question. He's, the implication is nobody can know the mind of the Lord. And so he's making a point through the use of these questions. So who has known the mind of the Lord? Well, obvious. Nobody has known the mind of the Lord. Who has been the counselor of the Lord? Well, obvious. Nobody is the counselor of the Lord. Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? Obvious. Nobody can give him a gift that he might be repaid. The mind of the Lord cannot be fully known other than what he has revealed to us in what we call natural revelation and special revelation. In his creation and in his word. The Lord cannot be counselor counseled because he does all things right and well the, in regard to gifts he already owns everything and so god can never be indebted to you he'll never look at you and say hey i owe you one so who has been his counselor nobody he's a source of all wisdom who has first given him to him that he might be paid back nobody why how especially in regard to that last question who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? So many people have an angst about this. Like, I got to pay back God somehow. This is, this is a debtor's ethic. That people who do for other people because they've been done for. So they live in this constant debtor's ethic. Or they don't want to receive something because they don't want to put in the spot of, oh, I feel like I owe them something now. But friends, we need to learn it early and we remind ourselves of it often that God loved you first, which is why you love Him. He gave His Son for you and there is nothing that you can do to pay Him back. You might ask, well, how can this be? His wisdom and knowledge and judgments and ways far surpass all of us. His mind cannot be known. His, he cannot be counseled. He cannot be paid back. And so we ask with Paul, all right, Paul, well, how can all of this be? Verse 36. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Do you see how radically comprehensive that statement is? 
Notice the last two words of that first sentence in verse 36. All things. Don't dilute those two words. What things are from God? All things. What things are through God? All things. What things are to God? All things. So is there anything that is not from, through, or to? No. All things means all things. Everything is from, to, or through God. The rest of Scripture bears this out, by the way. 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. Or 1 Corinthians eleven twelve, And all things are from God. Colossians 1, For by Him all things were created. Hebrews 2.10, For whom and by whom all things exist. And so from Him are all things. We worship a God who knows the end from the beginning because He has determined the end from the beginning. If God does not know the future in radical precision and accuracy as a result of His forethought and His planning, then He is not God. If He did not orchestrate the happenings of history, then He is not God. If He does not guide and order all things to the purpose of His will, then He's not God. And so if there is ever a moment in heaven where God is doing the rubbing His hand things and worried about the things that are happening on earth, then He's just not God. All things are from Him. So what does that mean? Well, the creation is from Him. And in response, the creation then ascribes to Him glory as what does the psalm say in Psalm 19? The heavens declare the glory of God. The creation itself, heavens are declaring God's glory. Our salvation is from Him. And as those who have been given not only physical life, but spiritual life, we ascribe to Him glory for what He has done. And so every circumstance in your life is from Him. He has all things ordained and mapped out in your life. His perfect plan is in place. He is absolutely sovereign over all things. You consider one of the famous verses in Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You know, Paul doesn't say only the good things work together for good. It's all things work together for good. Everything in your life is worked out in some way for the glory of God and for the good of you. Death, sickness, the sorrows, the job losses, all of it is working toward the glory of God and for the good of you. You see, this sentence in verse 36 provides such power, such a powerful theology that it gives us a big and grand view of God. And so I would ask you, is your perspective less than this when it comes to God? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things is that, is that where your eyes are looking? Is that how you're calibrated in terms of understanding God and His relation to everything else? This is an absolute statement of the highest order that can only lead us in one direction, and it's the direction that the Apostle goes to in the next sentence. So if everything that we experience in life, this creation and our salvation and our relationships and our church and everything that we experience is from Him and to Him and through Him, then the only right response is what? 
to live our lives to glorify Him. Look at the end of verse 36. To Him be the glory forever. Christian, there are not many things that you do in this life that are going to be forever. You're not going to remain married forever. You're not going to remain a mom or dad forever. You're not going to work the same job forever. You will not celebrate holidays forever. You will not stay in the same house forever. For each one of us, there is a day determined by God where we will die. And there are not many things that you're going to do forever that you are going to do right now, but you will all glorify God forever. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously asks, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That's the chief end of you. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Our chief end on this earth should be to glorify Him. To enjoy Him. And that everything we do in the context of that eternal state, the work that we do and the building that we do and all of the enjoyment that that will be in eternity, it will all be centralized on glorifying God. Perfectly. In your glorified body. Glorifying God. Perfectly. And there's a ton of Scripture to be backing this up when we think of the glory of God and the concept of forever or eternity. Romans 16 says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore. Ephesians 3, To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. 1 Timothy 1.17, To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Revelation 5, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The glory of God will continue forever and ever and ever and ever. Never ending. Never diminishing. Never finally fading out or the batteries die on His glory. It never will go away. So brothers and sisters, the things you are doing now, you will not always do. But one thing that you can do now that you will be doing forever is ascribing God glory. You won't be ascribing the angels glory. You won't be ascribing the Apostle Paul or Peter or Abraham or Moses glory. You'll be ascribing glory to the only one to whom it is due, and that is God. And so to come back around to it, He is worthy of our ascribing Him glory because He is the God of glory, that this glory is something intrinsic to Him. You know, all three persons of the Trinity are noted for their glory. In Ephesians 1, He's called the Father of glory. In 1 Corinthians 2, the second person is called the Lord of glory. And in 1 Peter 4, you see the Spirit of glory. Steve Lawson said, No one can add anything to God's intrinsic glory. God is who He is, never diminishing, never increasing, forever the same, the sovereign ruler, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present, all-true, all-wise, loving, grace-giving, merciful, righteous, and wrathful. It is His intrinsic glory that God delights in making known to His creatures. His glory is perfectly magnificent and high and deep and wide because that is who He is. We'll be searching 
this out for all of eternity. You will never get bored when you are in glory. He will be inexhaustible, inscrutable, unfathomable. You will never grow disenchanted of Him. And this is why it is soli Deo Gloria. This is why it is to the glory of God alone. When it comes to the glory of of the God of glory, you realize that He is not in a sharing mood when it comes to His glory. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else. Our disposition to glory should be what we see in Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. Jesus, or Didn't Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount say, let Your light so shine before men that they may see Your good works and glorify You? No. That they may see Your good works and they might glorify Your Father who is in heaven. And so specifically in regard to our salvation, this is why it's so important to affirm that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that none of your salvation depended on you in order to accomplish it. That all of your salvation is a work of God and not your work. Because if you contributed anything to your salvation, then what does that mean? You're deserving of some of the glory. And God doesn't share that. As Jonathan Edwards says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God has done all the work. It is His grace. It is His gift of faith to you. It is Himself that He lays on the cross. Therefore, He gets all of the glory for what He does through those things. And this is where the sweet news in that the God of glory enters because He has extended to us a gospel of glory. The sweet and refreshing water of the gospel that quenches the sinner's thirst. The gospel story is a story of glory. Oftentimes when we're giving the gospel to somebody, the first verse that we take them to is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we all fall short of God's glory None of us have this glory that's just intrinsic in and of ourselves and a reflection of our own holiness and all of that. But then you begin to hear the story of what Jesus did for sinners. That He came to earth as a baby and skies opening and remember the glory of the Lord shone around the shepherds. The angels were giving the news of the baby born in Bethlehem. This baby that came to earth in glory was called the Lord of glory and he was killed on the cross. He was resurrected. He received a glorified body himself and ascended into glory. And we know that even when he returns, the Bible tells us that he is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And so to him be the glory forever. Is your life centered on the glory of God? Again, to quote 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From the normal things like eating and drinking to the heavier things, the big decisions, all of it, 
to the glory of God. Is that how your life is calibrated? Are you motivated by God's glory? Does your heart burn to bring Him the glory that He is due? The reality is, we so often burn for our own glory. We want a monument to ourselves, plaques with our name on it, the applause of the thousands. How do you live your life? Is it centered on the glory of God? Is the work of your hands throughout the week done with a God-glorifying purpose? Going to work, raising your children, loving your spouse is everything with the glory of God in mind. Johann Sebastian Bach was a German composer. And he wrote beautiful music. And one of the neat things about Bach was that he was a Christian. And of course, as a Christian, he produced beautiful music. He was a believer. He had an extensive library for somebody of that time to, to own. He was well-read. He loved the Lord. And oftentimes, on a newly completed piece of music, he would just write three initials. S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. And brothers and sisters, I would ask you, whether it's composing a piece of music, whether it's making your bed, whether it's reading your Bible, whether it's being hospitable to people in the context of the church, whether it's preaching a sermon, whether it's singing a song, is everything you do able to be stamped with those three letters? SDG. Let's pray. Lord, this is our hope that all that we do would be done to the glory of God. Lord, if, if we as a church would understand, as Paul did, the deep things of God, and with hearts of praise burst into doxology and praise to You, that we would live our lives, whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, that it would all be to Your glory, how might our lives be so different than they are even today? And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be able to stamp SDG on the work of our hands. Lord, as we continue in our worship service, we do pray that it would be done to your glory and yours alone, knowing that you do not share your glory with others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.